I don't know, you know, there's not many people who are doing completely novel things. Welcome back. You are listening to Let It Out, hosted by me, Katie Delbout. I talk to interesting people and ask them whatever I'm curious about. This week, I talk to Laura McLaws-Helm. She's a fashion and cultural historian and consultant that I met at a brunch for The Fullest Magazine last fall in New York City. And speaking of the Fools Magazine, you guys follow them, right? Do you guys read their magazine and and follow them on social media? They're they're the coolest. Nikki, the editor-in-chief, is lovely. And if you guys don't already follow them, please do. I actually just got their latest issue in the mail, and I have an essay in it. It's their print edition, which comes out quarterly. And the title of my article, I believe, I'm not home right now, so I don't have it with me, but I think it's called What I Learned from My First Hangover. And it's a very long essay I wrote, and I think you guys might like. It's super vulnerable. Check it out if you want. Anyway, back to this week's episode. It has nothing to do with the fullest, except that that's how I met Laura, today's guest. And she's a delight. I remember at that brunch, she was strikingly beautiful in her vintage dress that she was wearing. And I instantly followed her on Instagram where she curates the most beautiful vintage images. And aside from her Instagram, she is the co-founder and creative director of a fashion and art magazine called Lady. And she also has a clothing line called Marshmallow. And in in this episode, we talk about her entire story, how she found her flow in the work that she's doing. We get into how she handles being so productive and doing so many different creative things as a multi-hyphenate. And we talk about fashion, including shopping for vintage. We talk about trends and vintage cycles, style. Of course, we talk about body image because this is let it out. And I always bring that up. Anyway, I hope you guys like this podcast. If you do share it, send it to a friend that you think might also like it. Join the Secret Listener Facebook group. What's nice about our community is that it's relatively small, so we can genuinely interact with each other and meet each other, and I I really like that. So I'll get to this episode as quickly as possible. I really love the sponsors that I get to work with on this podcast, and I'm so grateful that I get to keep doing it. I'm actually in Philadelphia right now recording this at GoodFest. It's tomorrow. I just went to the speaker's dinner and had some organic wine and lovely food and got to meet so many friends and previous podcast guests that are here as well. And I'm excited to get to meet some of you, but that's not important right now because by the time you're listening to this, GoodFest will have already happened. Thank you so much for listening as always. And I will talk to you at the end of this episode. 
Today's episode is supported by Four Sigmatic, which I'm psyched about because I love talking about them. Some of you may know about them already because I've had Taro, the founder of the company who I've known for years on the podcast way before they were a sponsor because I just love them so much. Four Sigmatic is a company that's all about mushrooms and they use these superfood mushrooms, not your shiitakes, not your button mushrooms, but things like cordyceps and lion's mane and all of these powerful mushrooms that are superfoods and really good for you. And they have helped me with my mood. They've helped me with my energy levels. I also just love the taste of them. That's probably my favorite part. They make hot cacaos. They make a chai mix. That's my favorite. They also have coffees, mushroom coffee elixirs that if you're a coffee person, you'll definitely love. Amanda, who works with me, loves the chaga elixir. She has it blended warm or she can pour it over ice. That one has some coconut milk in it and it makes it really creamy. I love mixing their powders into my yogurt. Amanda puts them in her oatmeal. They're so versatile and I really, really love their products and I think you will too. You can get 15% off your order by heading to foursigmatic.com slash Katie and use the code Katie at checkout. That's my name, K-A-T-I-E at checkout for 15% off your order. And also check out their Mushroom Academy. It's really cool and we'll teach you all about what these mushrooms are and why they're so gosh darn good for you. Today's episode is brought to you in part by a brand that I've been using and loving, and I honestly think you guys will too. It's called Organifi, and they make just a few products, but the products they make, they do really well. And the founder, Drew, is also from Michigan. We've also become friends since he did the podcast last week. And you know what? I really love these products. He makes green juice powders that are really easy to take on the go. They contain 11 superfoods blended into this 100% organic powder that actually tastes really good and has so many vitamins and minerals and antioxidants in it. It's helped me to knock on wood, not get sick, and help me feel really great. They also have a gold powder, which is like a turmeric product I've been having with some macadamia nut milk in the evening. I love their red powder, maybe best. I mix that one into my yogurt. I really enjoy their products, but my favorite is their probiotic. It has been amazing for my personal digestive health. It contains 10 potent strains of probiotics, and it's in an easy to take capsule and I've taken a lot of probiotics you guys like a bunch of them name a probiotic I've probably taken it but this one is probably my favorite I think you should check it out if you take probiotics I think you'd like this one so check out any of their products Organifi that's Organifi with an I O R G A N I F I dot com and use the code let it out to receive 20% off your order. That's 20% off and use the code let it out. Thank you, Organifi. I've been liking starting it in the present, like before we get to your background and where you're going, what have you been realizing, pondering, contemplating like today or learning in the past week, but like super presently? 
I've been working on, I have to give a talk later this week. So I feel like I end up just sort of concentrating on the work that's of the totally. week. But because it's historic, whatever I do is historical, it ends up taking me in all these like little sort of roundabout rabbit holes and passageways. So I'm giving a talk about the history of like mass fashion, but I've ended up, you know, spending a lot of time just researching the history of malls, and oh, <laughs> that wow. kind of thing, which I'm super excited. It has been really interesting for me. Yeah. And yeah, I just get into these rabbit holes of research, which is why I love what I do. It means that my work generally takes longer than it should because I just go off on all these tangents. Yeah, I'd love just when people are like, hey, when you give a talk on this thing and I just get to go off and do yeah. all the work on it. Yeah. Because then it leads me to all these other things. And it's cool that like, I sometimes I feel that way about this podcast where like, like today mm-hmm. I got to spend the day with you. Like I listened to so many episodes of your podcast oh, and I really you. like did a deep dive in your writing and it was lovely. And I was like, it's so cool that this is like kind of my job mm-hmm. that I get to do something I'd want to do anyway. But I probably went to like, allowed myself to indulge in like someone's content for a whole day if I wasn't interviewing them later you know totally yeah I know it's the same thing whenever I have to do research for whenever I'm interviewing someone it's the same way yeah it's it's kind of nice so let's go back to your work and how you how you got into it so let's start at the very very beginning I heard on another podcast that you grew up in London yes so I was born in New York in Manhattan okay and then we moved to London when I was seven, and I was there till, yeah, I was 18, and then I moved back to New York to go to NYU. What were you like as a kid? What was your childhood like? What was growing up in London like? I think I was a pretty studious um, child. You know, even as like a very small child, I was very interested in history and beautiful things, very interested in fashion from quite a young age. There's a story that my mother tells about one time we were visiting their friends in Pasadena. I must have been around three years old. And they were, you know, catching up with their friends and probably having a drink and everything. And then suddenly the doorbell rang and it was a neighbor being like, is this child with you? (sighs) I had left the house and gone down the cul-de-sac knocking on everyone's door being like, hi, can I have a tour of your house, please? Oh my God. And I was a little tiny three-year-old. So they were like, of course, yes, you can have a tour of our house. Until finally someone brought me back but I sat down with my mother and I told her about every house and the interior of everything so it was very clear from a young age that I just was really interested in the world yeah. but especially about buildings and clothes and I was wanting to see everyone's closets and their books I just wanted it I was just a researcher by yeah. nature I think I'm like that now like was hearing about that I would want to I think about <laughs> oh, I still, that in neighborhoods all the time oh yeah I'd love to like especially at night like peek into yeah, people's windows when you can you can see but it definitely like in, everything has made sense in my life. Like from my childhood, my, my childhood obsessions have just stayed the same. I've just made a, a living out of them That's eventually. So cool. And yeah, so I think I was just really interested in all that. And my parents were totally cool with my weird little obsessions. My mother's an art historian. So oh. I grew up in a, you know, where our vacations, unless it was visiting family, we were going to Italy so she could see the back of a sculpture or something like, you know, look at something very specific. So we were always in like little weird Italian towns. And I just sort of grew up in that, that way, you know, thinking about culture and art in a very particular way, I guess, you know, um, and being really exposed to that. What about your dad? Was he into, was he an artist or into art as well? I mean, he was a banker, investment banker, but 
I think always, yeah, just very, has a good eye. I was very interested in living a beautiful life, mm-hmm. you know, so the had grown up, you know, with his, in Switzerland and beautiful homes. And my grandparents were very, my grandmother, fantastic taste. So it was sort of part of his world as well. Yeah. And he's also, he's a very good photographer. Did you have brothers and sisters? I have a brother, older brother. Okay. Or is he also into the arts? Are you guys close? Yeah. I mean, he's, he's a very, he was always very good at like art history and everything. And he doesn't end up doing as much with it now, but yeah, he's equally good at some of, you know, mm-hmm. especially growing up and studying it. Did you know what you wanted to be when you grew up as a kid? Do you remember what you said? Well, first it was a ballerina, which sadly I didn't have the body type for. So I quit that quite young. But after that, I thought I wanted to be a fashion designer for many years or a writer, like a novelist. I would write downstairs. I have a little book that I wrote when I was, I don't know, like five or something. Oh and God. it's a murder mystery about a fashion designer it's quite something. And yeah, so I knew that it was something I wanted to be in fashion. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when I was 16, I went and did a summer program at Parsons for fashion design. Mm -hmm. And I realized that it probably wasn't what I, I really wanted to do, especially at that age, like the most fantastic, beautiful, over the top things. And they were teaching us like, okay, if you're going to do a resort collection for Ralph Polo, Ralph Lauren, and it, you know, it has to be in, you know, these sort of specifications. I was like, this is the most boring thing ever. I don't want to do this. And I was like, I can't go to school for this. I can't, I don't want to just get a job at a company and just have to work within this template. Right. Yeah. And so I quit, I just quit my dreams of fashion design. That's great. You had that summer program and you didn't get into it yeah no I'm glad that I did that you know it was fun and I still have good friends from that program but it definitely let me see that my ideas of fashion design were very limited like were sort of just fantasy you know they weren't Mm -hmm. the reality and getting exposed to what the reality would be like and it was just a tiny part of the reality it was like not even the reality of like running the business type of it but just that you have to work within sort of a consumer oriented view made me not interested anymore yeah so okay before we get into like what was next with your career so in high school what was your fashion like how did you dress I mean I started wearing all vintage pretty young and collecting I mean I was maybe like 10 or something and it was always I was really obsessed with I went through sort of different obsessions with sort of music subcultural styles Mm -hmm. you know for a long time it was like glam rock like Mark Bolin, you know, type stuff. And then it was, and I was very into heavy metal for a long time. So most of high school, it was heavy metal. It was very, like when I would dress up, I dressed up in like 40s gowns and Ozzy Clark. I was already collecting a lot of the clothes I still wear. Mm-hmm. But when I was in school, I was wearing very tight pants that laced up the side with skin showing and then like old metal t-shirts and yeah, that was like old Motley Crue shirts. That was my yeah. thing. Lots of lots of eyeliner everywhere. <laughs> what was like high school in London like? I went to the American school mm-hmm. in London through my whole sort of schooling career. And it was great. I think I had a really wonderful school. I mean, there were really great teachers, really passionate teachers, good education. Like i you know, I didn't realize how lucky I was until I met other people who'd gone to like public school in America. And I was like, oh my God, mm. like my boyfriend's so smart and so great, but he always went to public school and 
had not great teachers. And so he didn't get the opportunity to learn it the way I got to, you know? Mm -hmm. And did you know you wanted to move to New York? I think I went through different stages. Like I went and looked at some schools in California and then I was really, really wanted to stay in London. But a lot of that was because I had these friends outside of school and we were partying a lot, you know, and hanging. I was hanging out with rock bands at the time. And I kind of just wanted to continue doing that mm-hmm. and go to art school in London and sort of continue the world that I had developed outside of high school. And my parents weren't too enthusiastic about that. I mean, they were, you know, they were fine with me going to art school. So they kept saying, like, they thought that I should do something that was both academics and art. Mm-hmm that I was too good at academics to give it up completely. So I applied to all kinds of things, I, all different kinds of programs. And then you decided at NYU. Well, it was, you know, at the time, I mean, I've admitted this to my mother. I've thanked her at the time. I wasn't really, didn't really want to go. Yeah. I got into the photo program at NYU, which is very small. They only take like 12 people a oh, year wow. and you have to apply straight into it. Wow. So you get, first you get it, you apply and you get into NYU, but then your application gets forwarded onto them and then, they take a certain small amount of people. And I got in and she was like, this is such a great, you know, it's one of the best photo schools in America. Like, and you also be able to do academics. We, she flew me over to go to an accepted student's brunch. Everyone was wonderful. We walk out and she's like, so you're going to go? And I was like, I don't know. I still want to be in London. I still want to go to Central St. Martin's. We had this huge knockdown drag out fight. And she left me on the street and got me, she got in the cabin, left me on the street. And, you know, eventually I agreed and it was, a, was obviously the right decision, you know? Yeah. I thanked her since then because I did want to do more than just arts. So did you stay with photography? Was mm-hmm. that your main... Yeah, that was my major. Focus. Mm-hmm. So then after school, did you think that you would work as a photographer? Yeah, I thought I would, but I wanted to be an art photographer. Mm-hmm. So that was really what I focused on for the four years And when I got out, I just didn't have the self-confidence to like go and pitch myself to galleries and be like selling my work. And Mm -hmm. I just wasn't in the right place in my life. I don't even know if that's my personality anyway. I still have a lot of trouble pitching my work myself. So I did a lot of other things for a while. What were some of your first jobs out of college and in college? Like what were you into fashion and history throughout that time? I always was obsessed with fashion history Mm -hmm. and vintage clothes. So I was always collecting and reading about it, but I always thought thought that was my passion and that it was just sort of not anything to do for work. And then if I ever actually wanted to do my master's in fashion history, I'd do it when I was old, like after I'd had another, my photography photography career. And so during school, I interned with the Darius people about mostly... I mean, it all makes total sense in my, my career. Like, you know, I'd intern with a photographer, but I'd sort of do their archiving of their images, like scanning and labeling. And that was sort of what I was better at. Whenever I sort of tried to intern or assist photographers, I wasn't so good on set, you know, like with a fashion photographer or anybody. Like that wasn't what motivated me. Yeah. So I really wasn't that good at it. And I hadn't paid att- that much attention in like my lighting classes and things. So when I got out of school and was trying to assist, I just wasn't happy at doing that. So right out of school, I actually got a job in a store, this fashion designer named Tracy Fife. 
I had been a big fan of his clothes since I was a teenager in London. And I'd seen a couple of them in a magazine, like British Vogue, and like tracked them down and would save up for them. And my, I'd, you know, get my mother to buy me one of them to wear to like a wedding or something. Mm-hmm. And then when I moved to New York, I would start hanging out in the store because all the girls were like the most beautiful, intellectual, smart, wonderful people I'd ever met. Like, but a cross section, all from different places, all really gorgeous and amazing, weird tribe. And I sort of got invited into their little world. And so when I needed a job, they asked me if I wanted to work. And I worked there for two years. And it's ended up like that's sort of, a th- we'll come back to it later, I guess, because that's <laughs> sort of everything else in my life ends up tying in with that shop. Yeah, cool. And after being there for maybe a year and a half, I got an internship with a photographer doing retouching and then ended up getting hired full time and moving up to head retoucher, which was fine. <laughs> I wasn't my dream job. I, I was happy to be in back in photography for a bit. And then I realized like this wasn't what mm-hmm. I wanted to do. So you're working at that store. You, will you leave the store to do the retouching? Yeah. What was your next career move at that time? I was just... Retouching is very exhausting, especially in that I was doing sort of focal planing where I was matching together like 10 or so negatives that are large format negatives so that like a print of a building could be printed wall size and be perfect all in focus. So I was doing like tiny, tiny work on two big screens in a dark room. And I was like, I'm 24 and I feel like I'm losing my eyesight. Yeah, and I was like, this is really monotonous. Yeah, and it was not. I'd come in loving the the photographer's work and really wanting to work for him, and then you know just his personality and everything. I eventually was like, I've got to do something else, and I was suddenly like, okay, maybe I should just go, go get my master's. Yeah, like go back to school. I felt like nothing was moving in my life, so I asked my parents like if they would support, you know, help me out if I went back, and I applied to FIT. And it was like, suddenly like the moment I made that decision, like everything in my life started actually mm-hmm. moving forward again. Yeah. Like even before I'd left the job or gotten accepted, it was just making that decision. Yeah. Like my mother told a friend of hers that I was thinking of doing it. And the friend was like, Oh, I was just at the Nobel prize thing. And also last week, and I was talking to this woman in a hot tub and she <laughs> is a retired fashion designer. And maybe Laura should talk to her. And it was Mary McFadden, who was a quite huge fashion designer in the 1980s. And I was like, I can't talk to her. Like, why do you just give me her phone number? And I sort of put it off for a bit, like calling her. And finally, one day I did. I was still working for the photographer. I called her and she's like, oh, yes, come to this opening I'm going to on Thursday. Come meet me. So I was like, I basically arrive at this opening at the Museum of the City of New York, like scared out of my mind. I wasn't even going to go. My boyfriend's like, no, you have got to go. And like snuck in because I wasn't on the list then like followed her around for like half an hour like I don't know what to say (laughs) and then I walk up and was like hi I'm Laura I spoke to you on the phone the other day and she's like oh that's amazing and she's like and turns to the man next to her and she's like this is the curator of the exhibition and she's like Laura needs a job hire her oh my god and he was like oh I need a new intern and then I started I went and interviewed with him like two days later and he was my mentor for like nine years. That's so magical. Yeah. It was all like, oh, okay. I guess things are like, I think obviously I was doing the wrong thing for yeah. a couple of years. It like I was just really working and nothing was moving and I was, you know, miserable in yeah. a lot of ways, even though I was happy in certain other aspects of my life, I was generally miserable and yeah, it was great. 
So you're interning for him. You said somehow it ties back to... Oh, then later. Later. Now, my life now ties back to the shop. So what happened after your interning for him? I, well, immediately he was, he was in the process of curating a show at the Met. So within my first week, I was writing text that went on the walls at the Costume Institute. I was like, okay, I guess this is what I want to do. Yeah. And then I started, and then I got accepted to FIT, to their master's in fashion and history. Started that next fall. That was two years of great stuff. And I worked with him on a bunch of exhibitions. Got to the point where I was actually like the assistant curator with him on some projects, which were all like sort of fashion and fashion photography, beauty photography. And then I did the book after that. I did my own book. For my... My first year at school, the second semester, we had to do anything to do with fashion. Like our big project was anything to do with 20th century fashion. And there was a British fashion, well, fashion designer had been based in London, Thea Porter, that I just really liked her clothes. And I didn't know that much about her. So I was like, I'll do my thing on her. And then I realized when I was researching her that there was really no information, Mm -hmm. that it was the same paragraph that was like basically copied in every fashion book, history book. And so it was a difficult project to put together. It was, we had to, it was for my exhibition class and we had to design our, our dream exhibition. So I designed it and put it together. But at some point in that thing, in that, during that, while I was doing it, I'd found who I thought might be her daughter and sent an email and then didn't actually get a response until the project was done. Mm. But she was like, oh, I'm in London. I'd love to meet wow. you and see you. And I was going home to London like a couple of weeks later. So I went to London and she basically gave me access to all of her mother's papers, everything ever. Wow. So I was like, I guess I'm doing my thesis on this woman. Right. And that was, you know, I spent the next, that next year writing my thesis and doing it on her, which was great. And then I applied to go do my PhD at London college of fashion. And she was going to be like, Thea Porter was going to be a major part of that. So after I graduated from FIT, I went to, started going to London. I didn't move. I sort of was going, maybe not my smartest idea, but like trying to live both, they live in New York, but like commute to London mm-hmm. and spend like a month in London working and then come back. And luckily I could, my brother, I was, could stay with my brother and his oh. wife, but I wasn't happy. I realized I didn't want to be in academia. I mm-hmm. wanted to write a book. I wanted to be yeah. working. And, and you'd already just done your master's. Yeah. And I, you know, if you want to do a PhD, you really often want to be a professor. And I didn't want to be a professor. Mm-hmm. I've never really had any desire to teach, but I kind of was just doing it because I'm good at school. Yeah. And it, it was seemed like to like the next, next thing. Step. Yeah. And I wasn't sure about it. And luckily, the universe made it very clear to me that I was in the wrong place. And I sort of took a leave of absence to deal with some emotional issues that had come up because I was so miserable and got an offer to do the book, to do a book on Thea Porter and to do a show. Like her daughter helped connect it all together. So I was like, okay. So I took a leave of absence and was still like trying to figure it all out and went to LA to do some interviews for the book and got hit by a car. Oh my God. And was pretty seriously injured. And when I sort of like came to after several weeks of 
being out of it. Oh my goodness. I mean, I was, I was only in the hospital for five days, but I was in a wheelchair for eight weeks. And oh my goodness. I was like, Oh, I think the universe is trying to tell me not to do anything that makes me miserable. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, it was one of those things where I was like, Oh, I could have died. Yeah. I've been so miserable for the last year and a year or so doing this PhD and doing this stuff that doesn't, you know, I enjoyed some of the research for the PhD, but I was definitely getting sort of pushed and bullied I felt like yeah. by my um I can't remember the word but the you know the teachers that were my, my mm-hmm. guides who had a very specific idea of where my research would going was right. supposed to be going and I wasn't actually interested in that but I got sort of thrown in that direction yeah. and it made me miserable and I didn't stand up for myself but I think if I'd stood up for myself they probably would have told me to leave anyway like right. that they wanted this it's very specific, like very sort of political motivated way of looking at it. And I was more interested in the fashion and the people. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's fine. That's, that's their way of, they looked at the same subject in a different way. But after the accident, yeah, I just told them I wasn't coming back. And I just focused on the book and the show. And already I'd actually started working with the wife of the fashion designer who had the company that I'd worked at the store. Oh, okay. They, around the time I left the store and went full-time with the photographer, they broke up. Mm. And then I lost touch with her for a couple of years. And then reconnected with her on Instagram, like right when I was having trouble with my PhD. And we sort of chatted. And she'd been a stylist and a fashion editor before she'd been with him. And then for 20, 15, 20 years, they'd been designing together. Mm -hmm. And then broke up. And she went back to styling again. But she was like, oh, I kind of want to do like a zine or a magazine. And we, so we started doing like a little bit of work together. So after the accident, I just sort of focused on that. We, and that became our magazine lady. Wow. Cool. Yeah. So it was funny. It was like a weird, a really like looking back, it felt like a really weird time, but I feel like I was getting yeah. pretty loud lessons from the universe that I des- wasn't necessarily listening to yeah. as much as I should have been, but it took them getting louder and louder for you to actually oh, definitely. understand. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. So this kind of brings us up to the present. I kind of want to talk a bit before we get to Lady and some of the other things that you're you're doing now about Thea Porter and about what that experience was like making your book and why you chose to focus on her. Obviously, you liked her work, mm-hmm. but why she's so influential and why was she so underrepresented in history and in where was all the content on her? Yeah. You know, it's still one of those things. I don't really understand quite why she was in a way forgotten. I mean, because if you look through the magazines of the late sixties and late seventies, her clothes are everywhere. And she dressed a lot of very famous people and a lot of very influential people and was highly successful I think it has something to, you know, she was not a good businesswoman. Mm. One of the things I've learned through a lot of my research is like, it's really hard if you don't have a good business mind or mm-hmm. if you don't immediately make a good, good business partnership. And a lot of the designers that have been able to survive have had like either been like female designers have married someone in the, who's been their business partner, like Mary Quant or Jean Muir, someone who's able to take care of that whole side of the yeah, that take that off of their plate. Seems like a very different mind and skill set yeah. to a 
creative designer. Mm -hmm. And I mean, everything, the industry works quite differently now, obviously, where most things are sort of mega conglomerates. But if she'd had better business advice and a better business mind or, you know, or at least had listened to the better advice, she wasn't, you know, she was quite superstitious and, Mm -hmm. you know, always spoke to astrologers and she made choices during like the seventies that weren't necessarily the right ones. Mm -hmm. Like she didn't take things that could have made her business much larger, brought her perfume deals and other things that she wanted to do, but she just didn't know how to navigate those kind of conversations. Yeah. So I think by, you know, 1981, she went bankrupt and then spent the next decade, like struggling to sort of get back on her feet. I think in that time, you know, because it was obviously pre-internet, you sort of get forgotten, you know, like, and that was such a thing, like she had to close her shop and then eventually move to another shop. But like, you lose that. It wasn't like people could easily find, figure out where you moved. It wasn't, it was no Yelp. It was like, you had to, you sent letters if you had their address or hope that they saw like a little note in a magazine, you know, that said that you'd moved, but it wasn't the same. Yeah. So you lose every time that they'd have to, she'd have to move. She'd lose more and more of her customers. I interviews to be like the equivalent of like your Instagram, like going away like that without yeah. someone, without being able to contact yeah. any of those people. Yeah, it was. So, I mean, when I interviewed people who'd been big clients of her, they're like, yeah, after I just sold a lost her, I didn't know where she went, you know, and people who worked for her said, yeah, like they would just gradually by a bit. You just, it was harder to find, reconnect with the people who'd spent huge sums of money. Right. Mm-hmm. And because if they moved, then if it wasn't so easy to connect with people because yeah. it wasn't like you had cell phones. You just had a house right. phone if you did have their phone number and that would That's obviously change if you moved. Right. So I think that had a lot to do with her losing. She made this kind of decisions that had kept her business small. You know, in the end she'd actually like had stores in New York and had a store in Paris, but hadn't necessarily gone about it in the right way. So they hadn't lasted very long. Whereas a lot of the fashion designers that we know of, the Christian Dior's and everybody, or the mm-hmm. YSL's, they had these business partners who took care of this, the business side who figured out ways to license and grow. Right. And, and if you didn't have any of that, you might right. get the press, but how do you maintain that? Yeah. So if you look back, like the pre- her press is amazing and like her sales were good, but she just never figured out a way to keep it going. Yeah. And then once it got, she lost it. She really struggled. And a lot, I mean, there's a lot of designers who at that same point, like Ozzy Clark went bankrupt the same week that she went bankrupt. And he really struggled and fell back into very deep alcoholism and a drug addiction. Mm-hmm. And they both tried to keep getting ahead and wasn't really possible. Wow. That's so them. fascinating. What did her daughter think of the exhibit in your book? Right, so she wrote that her daughter wrote the foreword in the book. Cool. And yeah, we, it was great working together, and she was wonderful. I mean, letting me see everything, let me do everything, and for the exhibition, because Thea had been really had before she'd been a fashion designer, had done interiors, and was really known for her. One of the things that everyone spoke about was how the shop felt, the atmosphere mm-hmm. of the shop, and also if they'd ever been to her house, the atmosphere of her apartment was just. She'd grown up in the Middle East and had everything was very atmospheric and sort of that like fantasy version of Arabia kind Mm -hmm. of that we imagine, but was her reality growing up there, you know, in Damascus in the early part of the 20th century. And so in the exhibition, 
I recreated the shop in one section and I recreated the apartment with the actual furniture. Wow. Like, you know, some was at her daughter's, some was at her nephew's and like, you know, her actual paintings. And it was really wonderful to have because most of the clothes were custom. Like you would come in and you could try something on, but then she'd be like, actually you need to, she would bring out fabrics and trims and everything. And we still had her boxes of trims left over so we could just throw them around. It was I feel like a once in a lifetime opportunity yeah. to really be the first person to get to go through all of that. Yeah. Like when you see the big exhibitions on the major designers, they've had many exhibitions, mm-hmm. you know, and while they're wonderful, it's like in a way, everyone's trying to figure out a new way to retread the same story, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. And this was like, no, I'm getting to tell it right. for the first time. And I'm a total ephemera sort of junkie I love all the others I love the clothes but I'm as as excited by the sketch and the receipt and the little note yeah and like then and also the the sketch for the textile but the textile designers I was like I'm just gonna put everything in because who knows next time she's gonna have an exhibition or a book yeah so I just yeah kind of crammed it with a lot of stuff probably like probably too much but I felt like it's such a visual story and it needs to be shown from all angles, mm-hmm. you know, so you see all aspects of That's it. That's so cool. Does her influence style-wise, I'm sure during the time that you were doing it, it had to affect you and get in because you were spending so much yeah. time with her, but does it still influence you and your... Oh, yeah. I mean, I definitely, I mean, I have a bunch of her clothes and I still wear them and I think I wore them a lot at the time. Well, some of them were in the show, but... I haven't been wearing them as much lately because I think you just your eye changes a little bit, but I'm still super into it. And yeah. I actually was doing, she had an unpublished memoir that I used as a lot of oh, the wow. basis for my original research. And it's, it's actually going to be published. Oh, cool. So the last, over the weekend, I was going through the whole manuscript and emailing back and forth to their daughter and plugging in images. Wow. Uh, cool. So it was kind of fun because I hadn't like really deep dived back like I had to pull out my hard drive like one of my hard drives and go deep into it but once I was back into it I was like remembered exactly where things were and I was like oh yeah I still want all these clothes like I still want everything that I haven't found yet and I still yeah it's it was really exciting what kind of modern things or trends or designers have been influenced by her she's was called the mother of the rich bohemian look so she was really the first the first in sort of the late 20th century, I guess. You could say Poiré was the originator of it. To sort of take sort of Arabian, sort of bohemian look and make it super luxurious. So she was making like very, very expensive caftans for Elizabeth Taylor and Barbara Streisand and all of those kind of women and using antique gold braid. So did like anytime you see like a caftan with lots of jewels mm-hmm. and everything, often there are people are really looking at her rather than looking at the originals. I mean, she was looking at ones she collected in the Middle East and sort of updating them with textiles she had made and textiles she collected, but then taking it super luxe. Yeah, that's so cool. Let's go back to Lady. So you founded Lady TV, which is a magazine that includes film and editorials and articles and interviews, and you're a great podcast host. I, I've been loving listening. Can you talk about, you talked a little bit about how it came to be, but I'd love to hear it in your words. Like what does Lady transition to to what it is today? It started just as, well, originally we were going to make it into a zine. My partner had some really wonderful 
these two women she didn't really know who were creatives who sort of subjugated their creative career to support their husband's creative careers mm-hmm. had helped her out with some big favors, like major things, getting her son into a school. And she wanted to thank them. And she's like, well, maybe doing something that actually shows their creative work would be helpful. Like would be like the best way instead of like giving a dinner party with some yeah. flowers, you know, like, yeah. so she was like, let's ask them to participate in this and we'll make a zine. And both of her and I are apparently too fancy to figure out how to make a zine. We kept meeting with printers and we were like, oh, I don't like the print quality on that. And <laughs> it just ended up growing and growing. And we kept talking to other people and shooting more things. And then we published it as a magazine and we did it as an annual magazine for a couple of years. It seems like you two had too many skills to make a zine with like your background in photography and yeah, style. Prob- yeah, probably. We were just, we would look at the zine, the way that the zine would be printed and we were like, these people's work deserves better quality of printing. That was basically, we were like, we want to show off everyone's abilities to the best. And so that was what it became. So we ended up being like, okay, we can't do this. Let's find the, what magazine we think is printed the most beautifully and spent a long time just looking at different magazines and then eventually going with a printer in Canada. And yeah, we made a, you know, the first one wasn't that big. It was like maybe like 200 pages. And then the second one was, like 400 pages with multiple card stocks and six different covers. And we, we sort of went all over, went, went, really went for it. And it was really fun. We had a lot of fun putting them together. And it was a lot of it was just reaching out to young artists who hadn't really even shot, done anything like on commission yet and being like, well, how would you feel about doing something with us? And we would just help them be like, okay, this is, and now most of them have gone on to have very successful careers. That's so cool. And it was just really a wonderful experience. And then she moved to LA. And so we kind of put it on hold. She was working with a couple girls there to see about getting a site built. And I was doing bits of year and there, but also working on the book. Well, the book had come out, but I was working on actually a film version of Thea Porter, which eventually, you know, has been put on hold for now, but we'd got, I'd even gotten fun. We'd even gotten funding for that. So I was really focused on that for a while, yeah. for a year. And like the fact that it, it didn't end up happening was, I ended up in a sort of a weird deep depression mm-hmm. and coming out. Part of how I came out was by like, okay, I'm going to go back to the company that I yeah. co-own and like focus on that yeah. and sort of doing more film work with that. And then, then I decided to start doing this podcast last fall. So is the Lady Magazine still happening? Do you guys think you'll go back to it? We would love to print another yeah. one. It's very, very expensive to yeah. print. So we kind of put it on hold for a bit. Can people still get the past issues? We have them. We don't have them for sale up at the moment. I mean, if anyone wanted to contact them, I could yeah. send them. And then at some point, <laughs> I will probably put them back up on our site. Yeah. And I just haven't. Yeah. Yeah. I, do I have a lot of them downstairs. Beautiful. <laughs> I have a lot of them downstairs. Not, I mean, not a huge amount, but enough that I could put them back. So yeah. yeah. And so now ladies focusing more on film and interviews. Yeah. It's, we moved it. It's probably, it's pretty much all digital at the moment. Yeah. With articles and films. And then I started the podcast and then we've also started a clothing line. Yes. Yeah. I want to talk about. Both of those things. Okay, before we get to podcast and and Marshmallow, the film. So I saw the Richard Kern's Mm -hmm. 24-Hour Breakfast Club, which I loved. 
what is Lady's involvement in that? Are you guys art directing? Or I mean, commissioned it and uh-huh. pretty much everything other than him filming it. Yeah, we did. So cool. It's and that's mostly cool my partner's, you know, project. Yeah. I mean, she commissioned him to do it and brought him pretty much every girl except for I think one or two. We're, they're all our friends, mm-hmm. the women we know, and styling them where there is styling and yeah coming up with sort of storylines it was great I like I loved it so much I binge I mean they're (laughs) very short but I watched all of them in a second and it made me think differently about my morning this morning after watching all those yesterday I was like I felt like I was being filmed you know (laughs) like the best way after you watch a movie and it was it was so good I I loved that so much and I also have been loving the podcast. Your interview with Norma Kamali was the first one I listened to. I jumped around and now I'm caught up. But what was that like speaking with her? How much do you prepare for these interviews? You're so articulate and researched and what you're asking. I definitely prepare quite a lot. Yeah. I do a lot of research. And I do like, because I'm a researcher, I do pretty deep dive research. Yeah. But it's more so that when I like to sort of stand back and not really talk that much mm-hmm. but ask a question here and there and sort of steer let them go wherever they want to go but because I have a deep sort of knowledge of their life I can kind of steer it or I can know how to respond um, I think at the beginning I was doing more research than I'm doing now because mm-hmm. I realized I don't need to do as much as yeah. unless I just want to get into it but yeah it's because like what I always have interviewed amazing people mm-hmm. through the years but I've always usually been doing a project on a specific thing. So I'm researching Thea Porter. So I'm going to go interview a famous actress who wore her clothes, but I'm going to sit down with this actress and be like, okay, tell me about your experience with Thea Porter. Tell me about this tiny little bit of your life that you probably, you barely even remember. And I'm not going to talk to you about anything else because I'm doing this very specific thing. And that I, that's ended up happening throughout all the work I've done. And I was like, kind of, I have amazing opportunities to meet people and who were, have really interesting, fascinating lives. I just want to actually talk to them about everything. So that was where the podcast came from. Do you listen to other podcasts? Do you like this medium? Mm-hmm. What are some of your favorites? I am mostly interested in learning about things they don't necessarily know about, mm-hmm. but I like interviews over, I don't want just someone talking at me. Yeah. And so I listen to a lot of like wellness podcasts and things, you know, like, cause I, I want to hear from an expert mm-hmm. that's not, I'm not, and something that I'm not an expert on mm-hmm. and hear their opinions. And, and I like listening to some of the ones that are more like, I like being boss cause it's like sort of entrepreneurial and you sort of realize how other people approach business and yeah. that I'm not the only one who really has no idea what they're doing with business. Yeah. And I love them. Yeah. I think they're really smart. Yeah. Two weeks ago. Oh, cool. Yeah, and I've done theirs. I love them. They're really, they're fun. And I feel like I don't have that much time to listen to podcasts. Mm-hmm. But when I remember to, I do like to listen yeah. to them. They're great, I think, for in-between moments or while you're doing other things. And Yeah, like if I can remember while I'm like cleaning the apartment yeah. or something like that. Because I can't work with them on. Right. Because I think my work is so word-heavy. I can't have, I actually don't listen to any, yeah. have any sound in the house. I don't even like my boyfriend to be home when I'm like working, but yeah. So there's other sort of in-between moments like, Oh yeah, I'm cooking or I'm cleaning or something like that. You know, then I can be like, 
yeah. to- get totally into them and take, I like listening to really long ones and just like listening for 20 minutes and then coming back yeah. a couple, like a week later and coming back to it. Yeah. So let's go, speaking of business, let's go back to starting a magazine or, you know, taking on a big project. What advice do you have for, for that, for like focus or productivity you know you do so many things and you do them all really well what 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 are kind of like what are your writing routines like what are some habits that you have that are serving you I keep very obsessive lists I have a lot of lists are these on your phone do you I have them on my phone I have them in notebooks (laughs) I have them on my computer on my computer screen I have like a sticky of like every day I put down like the five things I've got to do that day and then like the five top things. Then in my list, my phone, I've got the things app and I have like multiple lists within the things app of like what I have to do today. And some of it's like things I do every day, like yeah. meditate. But then there's also, I will add in whatever else needs mm-hmm. to be you now. Like this came, was on my list. Like everything gets on the list. Mm-hmm. I couldn't do any of it if I didn't keep track. And so that I can be sort of moving in between lots yeah. of different projects in one day that's yeah. the only way I can manage so I, I expect you don't have a typical day no. but I I always ask about morning and evening routines are there a few things you do first thing when you get up in the morning and the last few things you do before bed I mean it's not super strict morning routine but I I, tr- I like to do all of these things I mean I drink hot water with lemon as soon as I get yeah. out to fill my cat's bowls those are like the first things mm-hmm. I give an offering on my, I have an altar and I give an offering every morning as soon as I get up and pray. It just sort of sets the mood for the day. I pull a tarot card and then I usually try and write, do morning pages. Sometimes I don't do the full three yes. page morning, you know, what she wants you, Julia Cameron wants you to do. Sometimes it's two lines, yeah. but I try. And then I meditate. What kind of meditation do you do? I've gone through so many different, I guess, phases of meditation. Like I'll do Kundalini for like a year. And then suddenly I'll be like, nope, over at TM. And I'll do TM for a while. And then I'll do Zazen. And I've been doing Kundalini for the last year or so. But I just do it at home. I don't really go to classes. And then like last week, I suddenly was like, I'm over this. And then I actually haven't had meditated the last three days, which is maybe why I've been feeling crazy <laughs> because I was like trying to do Zazen and was super not into it. I don't even know what that is. It's a, a kind of Zen oh, meditation. Okay. And so I, I probably should just go back to Kundalini tomorrow because <laughs> um, it keeps me a little more focused. Yeah. Because at least, I mean, I think with some of like TM and Zazen, I, I, it's easy. My mind wanders too much. Yeah. Which, you know, it's, it's obviously it's about learning to deal with that. But if I'm just moving from one Kriya to another, then I'm sort of more active in mm-hmm. Kundalini. But I do, if I don't meditate for a couple of days, I really notice it. It yeah. centers me. I find I like the way I behave more mm-hmm. on days I do it. For sure. You know, there's something that's like the only way I can explain it. What about in the evening? What are you, you know, you're doing a lot of things. You're, you could do you work into the evening or do you have kind of like a hard stop? What are the, yeah, it really, it's really all over the place because my boyfriend lives upstate half the week on the days he's not here. I'll often work really late because my business partner's in LA. Mm-hmm. So it's hard for me to have that stop. Like I'll just keep 
if she's writing me or like, I just keep working. And, you know, it's not necessarily always, but for lady, I'll, if I'm in the mood, I'll keep working on whatever I'm doing, like prepping for the talk I'm giving, or I'm quite happy to keep working. Yeah. Unless, yeah, unless I've got something to do. It makes it so that when I've got something to do, it's sometimes harder because then there's expectations that I'll be working, which I've had to sort of learn that I've got to be better about my boundaries. Yeah. And then when my boyfriend's around, he's pretty, he makes me stop. It's like, we sit down, we have dinner, and then, you know, we have a night together. It's done. It's probably good to have that. Yeah, it's it's definitely, it's definitely better for me, probably. How did you guys meet? We met at a party the night of the election. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yeah, the one good thing that came out of that night. Um, Yeah, very random. Wow. What does he do upstate? He's building a cidery. Oh, cool. Yeah, he's so got cool. investment, and so he's doing that. That's so exciting. This episode is supported by Four Sigmatic. I use their products basically every day. I always have them in my bag. I'm always giving them to friends because they've really helped me in my life. They make mushroom products, so these aren't button mushrooms or shiitake mushrooms, although I love those too. These are superfood mushrooms like lion's mane, chaga, reishi, and they do different things. There's some that make you calmer, some that add energy. And I've actually had the founder of this company, Taro, on my podcast a couple months ago, and I've actually known him for years. What's cool about Four Sigmatic is they make these delicious elixirs. There's a matcha one. There's a coffee one. There's a hot cacao. That's maybe my favorite. There's a hot cacao that even has some cayenne in it. It's a little bit spicy. I love that one. And they have a chai. That's maybe my favorite. Amanda loves putting the chaga elixir blended warm with some coconut milk. I like having mine with macadamia nut milk. I even put them in my yogurt. You guys, I love all their products so much. I really, really do. I'm not just saying that. And I honestly think that you guys will too. If you haven't tried them yet, this is the week to try them. You can get 15% off your order by going to foursigmatic.com slash Katie. And make sure you use the code Katie, K-A-T-I-E, at checkout. That lets them know that I sent you. Also, it will give you your 15% off discount. Their chai, if you like chai, it's my favorite. It doesn't have all of the sugar and sweetness that some of the chais that I've had before have. And it's nice to have one that I don't get the sugar crash or the sugar headache with, but tastes amazing and has some extra superfoods in it as well. So check it out. Check out all of their products. They also have a Mushroom Academy on their blog that you can go in and actually learn about the science behind these mushrooms. So if you want to learn more, check that out or check out my episode with Taro. So you also do consulting work and branding. Can you talk a little bit about that and maybe some advice for people with branding? And you've created such a strong personal brand, not only with Lady and Marshmallow and, and all the different things you do, but like, you know, your own personal brand. You know, I don't think I set out to create my own personal brand, you know, Mm -hmm. it just sort of evolved of like me, just my obsession since childhood have stayed the same. So like that's everything that I'm putting on my Instagram is the same stuff that 
I was already obsessed with as a little girl and collecting like weird 70s memorabilia at garage sales when I was like very small. So none of that was purposeful. It's just what I'm, and I think that that's a lot of it. It's just like being super authentic Mm -hmm. and not trying to, like sometimes I'm like, why does this person have so many more followers than me? And I have to realize like, I can't get into that because I'm like that I'm not playing any games with it, you know? And I'm just sort of like, okay, so this post didn't get any likes, whatever, move on. I still like it, you know? And I think, yeah, it's just really about being authentic and your voice and what you put out there. But a lot of my consulting, I'm brought in heritage brands to talk about, to talk about their heritage and then also to like figure out a way to bring it, modernize it. And I've only really gotten that work because I've got such a deep grounding in history and people Mm -hmm. know that they can come to me and they will get the research they wouldn't be able to get from anywhere else, you know, and that, and that I have just such a deep understanding of the cultural climate at all different times. Yeah. Cause it's not, I'm not just obsessive about fashion. I'm obsessive about everything around it. So I can give them a really good under, like I can go into an advertising company or a brand and give them a really good understanding of where they came from before and where they can, how they can take it to, yeah. to now. It's fascinating how many aspects of your knowledge base goes into so many different arenas. You know, it's not just like curating an exhibit. You can really bring this into so many areas. It's really cool. Yeah, it's been fun. I mean, it's not necessarily always been the um, most lucrative yeah. path I could have taken. Though, I, you know, I think I've been figuring it out more, like yeah. a better approach, you know, slowly figuring this out because history is not a lucrative field. But yeah, figuring out a way to talk to people about it in today's world yeah. is a good, you know, has helped me make connections with brands and companies that do realize the worth. Yeah. I think it's great to talk about it in those terms of like, a lot of people have to do a lot of, like we live in the age of the multi-hyphenate who's yeah. not just a curator. You're also a historian. You're also a writer. You're also making movies and doing a podcast and consulting and like, that's just, you know, it's, I'm the same way. I feel like most of the people I admire, it's a different generation, yeah. you know, where people aren't like working one job and working their way up. They're kind of like carving their own path. And yeah, it's interesting. It's okay. So speaking of you doing a lot of things, tell us about Marshmallow, your beautiful floral pieces. How did yeah. that come to be? Susan, my business partner, and I'd always talked about making clothes together. I mean, we'd I'd sold clothes for her old company. Like we had, we have a very close connection in terms of, and it's a very close aesthetic connection, Mm. more close than I've ever had with anyone else, even though, you know, she's quite a bit older than me. It was basically like what she was lived through in the seventies. I was obsessed with, you know? So she was like your artifact. Yeah. I mean, it was just, she was that sort of lived through the seventies and has that sort of waspy background that I have as well. But I, was interested in it through my grandmother, but then always had a good meshing of it. Yeah. And so I, yeah, it just, we always talked about it for years and then it just didn't seem to happen. And then, I don't know, we, we just last year, we started pondering these sort of, I love to wear bodysuits, but I was having trouble finding the ones I really loved. And it was a lot of discussion started around that, you know, originally sort of like 
just even for shopping, because we also have done a, like she does, she was doing quite a bit of personal styling for actresses and sort of CEOs. And mm-hmm. I would sort of get drafted in to help out, which would be fun because we'd go on shopping. Like you'd spend a week shopping for somebody, but mm-hmm. then you'd be like, there's no clothes. There's these things that are missing that we couldn't yeah. find anywhere that were sort of like clothes that were like, could go to work, but were really pretty and, but like looked elegant. You know, there was a certain thing that we couldn't find. And so it really developed out of those conversations of like something that's comfortable, not expensive, yeah, like that you look beautiful and, and they're striking and you can kind of capture the room, but you can wear to work or you could wear to a date. Yeah. And yeah, it sort of evolved out of that. And you it's been really fun so far. They're so beautiful. Thank I, you. Yeah, I'm going to get some. I'm very Thank excited. you. We're filming. She's in town, so we're filming an, another one. Of, because we, when we launch a new style, we do a little film. So we're doing one tomorrow. It's supposed to happen this morning, but it got rescheduled. So, yeah. And then we've, we've been, I was just out in LA for two weeks working on, like, a bunch of new styles, samples, oh, just cool. new styles. And, yeah, it's been really fun because I've never done that side of the mm-hmm. business so never I've written a lot about fashion yeah. but I've never designed yeah you know been that on that side of it it's it's a very steep learning curve I'm things are moving slower than I would love but that's also because I don't know anything about the business yeah. and it's really just the two of us and it's funny it's full circle from that program you went to and you were like yeah. no I don't really like these parts of it but you're still getting to yeah, I'm learning a lot. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes she'll be like, someone will say something like, we need tech packs or spec sheet. And I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking yeah. about. Because also I've always worked historically. And so the, the designers I've written about didn't necessarily have right. the technology and the things that we, yeah. you know, we talk about now. Yeah. It's fun because it's just every day is different. I have to figure things out and learn new things. Yeah, I feel like it's really inspiring because... It just goes to show, you know, I didn't really know what I was doing when I started podcasting and I, I still really don't. But I think it if you want to do something and you have an idea and you have a partner, especially I think having a partner is helpful, too, because you can kind of when one's down, the other one can be up and you can kind of help each other. Yeah. Yeah. I think we probably at some point would love like it would be great to have someone else's input in sort of the business side because mm-hmm. I don't think that's really either of our strengths. But and you found that's crucial. <laughs> yeah, we found that's crucial. But for the moment, it's fine. You know, we're selling and people yeah. are responding really well and we're having fun. And it's, yeah, it's been, you know, obviously there are days that are really stressful yeah, and you're like in a factory and like lugging fabric oh around. God. And But it's also totally worthwhile. Yeah. And especially when, when you get like an email from someone who's like, I feel so beautiful in this. Oh. It makes me, I you know. I haven't felt so beautiful in anything in so long. And you're like, oh my God, okay, this is why I'm yeah. doing this, you yeah. know? Cool. Or when I've worn something and I'm walking down the street and everyone stops you and you're yeah. like, okay, cool. Like we're yeah. on the right, like we're doing the right yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, it's like the opposite of your car accident, like yeah, <laughs> sign in the right direction. Yeah, totally. Like life every so often has given me like, okay, this is your sign. Because yeah. there's been days where I've been like, are we doing the right thing? Like, yeah. like felt super stressed out, like when website issues and then the factories issues and then everyone's calling you with bills and you're like am I doing the right thing and then you get some kind of wonderful response you know either from me wearing it or from like you know someone on Instagram or someone an email from a client you know customer you're like okay no the universe just sent me that just so I could be like no actually this is all right we'll get past 
this annoying, you know, website thing and they'll figure it out and we'll move on. Yeah. I find that too. I find that in any career, there's going to be aspects you don't like of it. Like there's still, you, you know, like taxes and like just stuff that's annoying to do, but you just have to have enough things that you like as part of it and balance it out. Okay, there's so, I have so many more notes and so many things I'm gonna ask you. <laughs> so let's do the rest as like sort of quick fire ish, but some might be longer. Okay, what's the best thing you've eaten in the last week? My favorite food is just like roast chicken and sweet potatoes, and my boyfriend knows that. So he made that for me the other night, and that was the best thing I've had. That's amazing. I would love to talk about trends with you a little bit and how vintage fashion influences. We talked about this a little bit before, but anything in our current, the trends of right now, like the cyclical nature of everything, anything you're loving or does anything surprise you or from a historical perspective, like why that is? There's nothing that really ever surprises me. You know, I, I'm surprised by how obvious a lot of the references are, like how little some designers, how little they change things. You mean they go back to like exactly what? Yeah, they will. They will buy a vintage piece and copy it like line for line. You know, and every designer does it. If you go any, pretty much every designer has vintage a vintage collection of resources. Mm -hmm. You know, it's this point. I don't know how. You know, there's not many people who are doing completely novel things unless it's like Iris Van Herpen, but she's making you know things that are very difficult to wear. They're like made out of plastics and they're totally original. But if you're making clothes that are wearable and sellable it's generally going to have referred to something that's been Mm -hmm. done before and so I get why designers do it you know and I see them at all the vintage fairs they're always there you know and the moment there's like a huge I mean on the runways it's a lot of 80s stuff I just wrote an article for heroin about the 80s references that they've been sort of growing over the last couple seasons and then they're really strong for fall and I think it's just like people's eye changes. So a couple of years ago when I was doing Thea Porter, there was a lot of 70s sort of bohemian stuff on the runways. And now people, and that that's that's still there. That's still like, especially in the sort of more mass market brands, there's still a lot of that. But I think people just want something new. Well, they want something that feels new, but also is something that's comfortable yeah. to their, you know, so, it's, so now it's just the 80s for a bit. I feel like mass market wise or just like what I see on the street all day long is like 90s. Very strong. Yeah, is it's that, very strong. Yeah. Why do you think that that is it? Is it like every 20 years it recycles or what is the. I think it's more. I mean, I think it's just there's now it's gotten to the point where the cycles are so non. They're just always going. If you wanted anything right now, you could find it. Mm-hmm. There's going to be some people are doing sort of 20s-esque things and some yeah. people the 90s. I think it's like, especially the sort of generation, like slightly younger than me who have like vague memories. If they yeah. have any memories of the nineties, right. They're, yeah. They're, they're Every really little at NYU, right? Now. Yeah. And so I think it's just to them, it feels totally new. And it also, I think it feels new to them because most people, my age and older don't want to wear the nineties. Mm-hmm. We, we lived through it. I mean, I was young, but I remember it. And I remember not thinking it was that fantastic even at the time. And I think if you like the, the sort of the, the, the younger, the millennials, yeah, I guess whatever they're called, they can wear that and feel like totally like their generation because mm-hmm. no one else wants to wear it. Does that make yeah, sense? Totally like, totally makes sense. Whereas like, we're looking at them and we're like, Oh my God, you look like you stepped out of blossom yeah. or something. And you remember that, or you remember like, Oh, I saw that at the mall in 
I can vividly recall things like associations with the things I'm yeah. wearing, which is, you know, when I was younger and wearing really se- all the 70s stuff, people would always stop and talk to me when I was, you know, a teenager and I was wearing like really out there. So like bell bottoms and 70s looks, people would always talk to me about it because at that time it was the 90s, it was yeah. the late 90s. And people were like, the older generation were like, why are you bringing this back? It's like the hideous, hideous thing ever. And that's how a lot of people I know feel about the 90s. Right. Right. Oh my God, it's, why are you bringing back? It's so hideous. Especially they're bringing back like the ugly parts of the 90s, yeah. but it's fine. There's a lot of really big sneakers yeah. going around NYU. <laughs> it's a, uh, yeah, I was over there the other day and I was like, oof. Like I see things on Instagram and I'm like, when I go to the explore page and I'm like, why? Why are you bringing that back? Because there were actually great things about the 90s. They're just not usually what people are referencing. Yeah. But at some point they'll, they'll come back, but they'll probably come back in the designers, you know, the, yeah. the high fashion stuff. But the sort of what people are wearing on the street is it's not my cup of tea, but it's fine. You know? Yeah. I've, yeah. There are things I like about it that feel really cozy to me about mm-hmm. like movies I loved from the nineties or like things that, cause I was a kid yeah. then and I had like older cousins who I thought were the coolest who dressed, mm-hmm. you know, with what was trendy. And so to me, part of that is like cozy and cool, but then there's other things that I'm just like, okay, that's, I don't need to yeah. go with that. I mean, I was mostly wearing vintage, but there were things that I was already, there were a couple of things like weird chokers and things from that era that I was into. And so when I see some people wearing things, I'm like, oh God, <laughs> I can't. But, you know, it's it's With, fun. I, lo- I actually love the fact that it all recycles yeah. and it's back and that people are hitting up thrift stores and, you know, collecting the things that, I would never have looked at, you know, I love that. I think that that's the way that it should be, you know, the circularity of inspiration. Yeah. Somebody's trash is another mm-hmm. NYU student's treasure. <laughs> Do you have such great personal style and obviously have been vintage shopping since you were 10. So what advice do you have for someone who wants to wear more vintage or like get into collecting things or like even define a personal style? I would just probably start just looking, I guess, mostly through images. And like, if you're trying to define your personal style, even figure out what you like, just start deep diving through Tumblr and Instagram, sort of vintage accounts, figuring out like, okay, do I, am I attracted to forties or am I attracted to like, and I mean, it's super weird to like sort of call, I always feel like decadism isn't really, there's so many styles that go through and styles that sort of transcend decades, but Mm -hmm. it's the way we end up talking about history figuring out what even moves you like you know what what do you feel excited by and then once you have an idea okay I really like 60s mod dresses or I like the, you know that full skirted look of the late 50s early 60s or I like I love the late 60s early 70s like super fantasy look that's my favorite where you know it's like pastoral princess and then a shepherdess and then a milkmaid you know mm-hmm. or the next day I'm gonna be a renaissance queen you know like those sort of that's my favorite era but once you get an idea of that, then you can start searching on, I love eBay and Etsy. I mean, I think that they're, if you're just also just figuring out how to find things, it's easier than going to. Mm-hmm. Thrift stores aren't the same that they used to be. It's really hard to find anything. What about sizing wise? Do you just have to try it on? and? Yeah. I mean, I guess I would get a really measure yourself. Yeah. Know your measurements. I know my measurements pretty clearly. And I, at this point, I can also just look at a garment, even on a picture. Mm-hmm. 
And it'll say the measurements and I can usually be like, mm, I think that's a little, the, you measured that off wrong, or I think I could still get into that or I have a pretty good yeah, sense, but that's, takes- that's a lot of practice, but definitely measure yourself because mm-hmm. you can't go by old sizing, you yeah. know, it'll say it's a nine, but it'll be tiny or, yeah. you know, it'll, you have to just, if you're buying online, that's the best way to do yeah. it. Mm-hmm. If you can't try it on. Those are good tips. Okay. What are you most looking forward to right now? Putting out the new marshmallow stuff in the next couple of weeks. Summer. Going away. This is your favorite season? I think anything other than winter is. <laughs> the same. I really don't like the cold. Where are you? You said you're going away. Where are you going? My parents live in Nova Scotia in the summer. So we're going to go up for a week and visit them. And my brother and my sister-in-law and my niece and nephew will be there. They live in Germany, so it'll be nice to be with all of us and it's just super chill like it's so beautiful there and just get to spend it like I mean I'll still end up working but I can work from wherever but can also like kayak yeah and go hiking and do like all the magical things that that'll be so nice yeah they're nice what are your best packing tips do you have any no I'm the worst packer in the world none of my clothes are the kind of like Capsule wardrobe, right. easy to like, oh, you just bring like this, like jeans and you have like these interchangeable tops. Like that's not the way I do. I'm imagining you with like a lot of really big, pretty vintage suitcases. <laughs> I mean, I used to have vintage suitcases. Now I just have the whatever rolly crap because it's easier, but I always have this giant suitcase, the biggest suitcase of anyone around. And then I arrive wherever I am and I'm like, how do I have no clothes? Like, and it's nothing that suits what I'm actually doing. It's the day I'm packing, I'll get some vision of what I'm going to be that week. And I'll be like, I'm Brigitte Bardot and on the beach in San Tropez. So everything will be this one sort of like gingham dresses from like 1957. And that all, everything I pack. And then I arrive and I'm like, okay, I have six it. gingham dresses. And I have to give, do work meet, I have like business meetings. And I have like going to a nightclub. Like, and I'm like, how did I not? Yes, there could have been one or two of those could have been fine. But like, where's all the rest of the stuff? Yeah, I'm just really bad at it. Do you end up shopping a lot? If I can, if I have time. Yeah. But often I just sort of make do with whatever I have. But every time I'm like, I'm going to do it better next time. And then I usually end up doing it worse. I heard you say, or I read in another interview that you like pina coladas. (laughs) What's your favorite place to get a pina colada in New York City? I haven't had one in a couple of years, actually. But the Commodore, I haven't had one there in a while, but they had the best one. So I'm guessing it's still good. If, they're still the, if the Commodore still exists, it's in Williamsburg. I, I hope it's still open. I don't know. Is a pina colada with an amaretto float. Mm. It's delicious. Mm. Any other favorite places in the city or like favorite things people have to see or do or eat? I really love the New York Public Library. Mm. It's probably my favorite place in the city. Even if you aren't a researcher and don't have anything to research, at least going to the Stephen Schwartzman Library and going to the Rose Room, reading room, is really amazing. But if you are you know, a researcher, I haven't been. Oh my God, it's so beautiful. Yeah, I, need to I helped my boyfriend do, when he, you know, starting his cider project, I helped him with some research so he could get some historical research, so he could get some understanding of how ciders were made for hundreds of years. So I was able to like go and pull up books from the 1600s through early 20th century. And it's amazing to have those at your fingertips and just to be able to go on the subway, 
put in a request, go, you know, and then three days later, it's ready. You go up there on the subway and you've got these amazing documents to have that access. And then because I'm a whatever official historian researcher, like I can go to the the sort of the private rooms and get access to really amazing materials. Like that's, that's the best thing about living in New York. If you're a historian is having access to all of that. If I need to see a ballet or dance performance, I can go to the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts and call up the, like the one videotape of it. Those kind of things like really excite me. Yeah. And so sometimes I just do, like I'll just go off on one of my tangents and I'll just go do that research yeah. for myself for no other reason. Just then like it's a good way to spend a couple of hours yeah. that takes me out of... Like a hobby, not work. Yeah, because I'll be, if I'm writing an article for somebody or doing something for something for somebody... It's just fun to go do something that's yeah. sort of unconnected. And maybe it will connect. Like, yeah. I've been slowly researching, pulling together research for, like, two novels for the last couple of years. So I've been, just whenever I have a chance, been doing the research, yeah. pulling it all together. Because yeah. I know that anything I write will be very grounded in history. Yeah. And also just other ideas for other books that I might do or scripts I might write. I love New York for giving me that opportunity to really delve into them. Yeah, that's so cool. You talked about your altar. Where are you with God, spirituality, what happens when we die? What's kind of your philosophy there? Did you grow up with a specific religion? No, my dad's agnostic. So we didn't grow up with any, any religion. My mother grew up in the Episcopalian church. My dad was super against us being raised like that. So I didn't, and I still, I really don't believe in Christian God, but I'm fine if you do like that. Totally cool with what people believing whatever they want. I consider myself a witch and I have for a very long time. And I go through sort of phases of being more practicing and less practicing. You know, I've been part of covens. I've been very active. And then I've other times just been more solitary and been very active. And then there's periods where I've been not really active at all. Mm-hmm. But I, I do really believe in magic and the energy of the universe. Cool. Um, and that working with deities and ritual to sort of connect with it. What do you think happens when we die? I don't have a, yeah. a real clear idea. I, I mean, it's one of those things I don't really think about. Yeah. I guess I'm so generally sort of anxious about what's going on right now here totally that yeah I haven't gotten to that yet good way to be I don't, <laughs> I, don't I also I ask about it because I think it's interesting to talk about but I also don't think about it what about we've talked a lot about fashion and I think it's connected to bodies and how we feel about ourselves and how we make ourselves feel better about ourselves so I always talk about body image on this podcast so I usually frame the question this way, you know, if you're having a bad body image moment, you're not feeling great about yourself. What are your tools to kind of pull yourself out of that? Or what are some, your advice on that? For me, it's sort of a hard question because I don't know how deep you want to get in that because I have a history of eating disorders. So it's like a lot of what the advice I would give is based on recovery, right? Yeah, so same. it's taken me a really long time to get to someplace where I'm okay with mm-hmm. my body and I'm still struggling, like even this morning. I was kind of in a bad place. It's hard. And I, I mean, I know for me that I know I'm in a really bad place if I don't get want to get dressed up and mm-hmm. I don't want to put my makeup on. I like don't take those time to actually like be the person that I think I am, yeah. you know, that like is me. And it's not about putting on an armor. It's just about like, this is like 
fully inhabiting my authentic self and yeah. like when I dress like when I dress in the beautiful vintage gowns and everything I know I'm in a bad place if I just want to like hide and mm-hmm. wear I have some like weird 80s sweater dresses that I like hide in you know and yeah it's about making even on a bad day like making myself get up and like yeah. dress and put on my makeup and like face the world as myself and yeah. not as the like cowering recovering bulimic you know mm-hmm. yeah were there any like we talk a lot about eating disorders on the podcast too were there any things that specifically have helped you a lot in your recovery I mean I'm in a 12-step program it's the only thing that's ever yeah. helped mm-hmm. I had a lot of treatment for 20 years different wow. things I mean obviously there were like I would yeah I first had treatment when I was like 13 wow and then over the years different Last time I was in a treatment facility was twenty nine when I was twenty nine, and nothing helped. Like I just got better at hiding. Yeah. Most of the time in that time, nobody knew I was doing it. I just got a be- became a better liar. And the only thing that's worked for me is the twelve steps. Mm. I don't really know how. I have no idea. Yeah. And but it's worked. Yeah, that's so it's great. The best thing that's ever happened to me that works for you. Yeah, it's such an interesting addiction and thing because hiding it is so challenging but doable but also you know we have to eat and we have to be in bodies and it's so complicated and deep and all the things and like yeah so intense okay just like one more before I ask you the last question this is just a time to recommend things so book music tv show podcast people it could be anything that you want to recommend to people that you're into that you think more people should should know about I know someone was asking about movies the other week and I was like, I can't remember any, any movies that I love. It always happens to me. Like they leave my mind the moment. I yeah. Them, I'm and like, then I and then them. I'm like, well, my favorite movie is dirty dancing, but everyone's seen dirty dancing. So it's not really a recommendation. It's a good I, one to revisit. Though. It's a really good one. Especially if you're having a bad day. My favorite TV show. I'm, I'm not one of those people who watches TV. No, mm. I can't. I don't get into shows. I feel like I like it's a huge time commitment that I don't have that kind of time. I don't understand how people do, but I use my time otherwise. But I do love Dynasty from the 80s. I've written a lot about the costumes in Dynasty over the years. But I think that anyone who's never seen it should watch it. it. It's, you know, it's totally over the top, ridiculous, but it's really fun. And if you like drama and costumes and yeah over the top storylines like it's really good and I think that Joan Collins character Alexis Carrington is a very I mean she's a major bitch but she's also like a really strong woman I think it's like (laughs) a really I also think it's like one of the first shows to yes it's the two the ex-wife and the wife of the main character Blake Carrington but the two women are really are the the center points Mm -hmm. of the show and then all these other sort of other women characters but it's really about these two strong middle-aged women who are like beautiful and like, and I think that that was really the first time it was on television and they're, which doesn't, I don't think a lot of people reference, they're like reference, like the cat fights and the clothes and, but it's actually really about female friendship. Yeah. Well, they're not their friend, they're their enemies, but both are like how you can inhabit being a powerful woman in different ways. Like Mm -hmm. those sort of the bitch and then the sort of the, like the really sweet kind, you know, Mm -hmm. woman and, but how, the two sort of archetypes of womanhood. Yeah. Yeah. But I like that the fact that they're middle-aged, they're not young, you know, yeah. it's like they're middle-aged, but they're 
the, they're the center points of all everyone's attention. Yeah. All the male attention, all the female attention, everyone's looking to them. And then books. I'm going to actually, soon I'm going to interview this author, this writer, William Least Heat Moon. And I've read his books before, but I'm going to revisit them. And I'm like really looking forward to mm-hmm. rereading his most famous book, Blue Highways, which is a sort of a travel log about this okay. trip he took across America in the early 70s. And he wrote it in the 70s. And it's very famous. I mean, in that sort of, I guess, in travel writing world and sort of Americana. And I was just talking to someone about it the other day. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I really need to just reread the whole thing before, before my interview with him. And... Yeah, really immerse myself back in it. Yeah. But it's cool. a really good one. So this podcast is called Let It Out. So I always ask, is there anything that you wish that I would have asked that you wanted to talk about that you don't usually get to talk about? Did I wring you dry for all of your wisdom? I think we covered everything. We covered a lot. Good. I hope it was Okay. No, this is great. Okay, so we end now with kind of a weird thing, but I think you'll be down. So it's called Let It Out. So I'll end with like taking a deep breath together. So I'll like count to three. Okay, ready? I didn't count to three, but you knew what I meant. <laughs> we did it. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I'm sorry it's so late. And um, you probably don't even know what time it is, no, but it's fine. thank you. Thank you so much for listening. That was my episode with Laura. If you liked it, share it with a friend or a stranger and subscribe on your iTelephone. Leave a review on iTunes. That would mean so much to me. And please support the sponsors. If you want to support this podcast even more, we have this really cool Patreon page where every single month I give a theme and a couple journal prompts that I'm working through myself and things that I'm just pondering and we work through them together, which is really lovely. If you want to be a part of that and donate to this podcast so I can keep doing it. That would be cool. No pressure. Thank you for listening as always. And tweet at me. When I say tweet, I really mean Instagram because I'm kind of there more, but you can tweet at me too. I'm at Katie Dalebout on Twitter and Instagram and definitely check out Laura's page. It's really well curated and she's lovely. And the emoji for this week's episode is the cat because what you don't know because of editing is that Laura had a wonderful cat who was just hanging out with us during this interview and it was lovely. So comment the cat on her Instagram on mine to let us know that you are still listening in the secret society all the way to the very bitter end. Let's discuss this episode in the listener Facebook group and I'll talk to you guys later. I hope you're really enjoying your summer and I am also enjoying my summer and I'm kind of sleepy right now. So I'll just talk to you next week. Bye.